0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the show, we're talking about news and the news, wildebeests and media. Joining us today in studio, are Amanda Sabalusky, who studies the ways in which ecosystems function with a focus on the Mara River in East Africa, and Candy Carter-Olson, a former professional journalist whose research focuses on how communities of interest use social media. First up today, the aquatic ecologist. What you're hearing right now is the sound of wildebeest crossing the Mara River in Africa. And it's also the sound of the circle of life. Because every year, thousands of these animals don't make it. But what happens to all of those wildebeest bodies? That's the subject of the research of our first guest, Amanda Sobolewski, whose research revealed the unexpected ways in which the mass drownings impact the ecology of the river. Amanda Sobolewski, welcome to Undisciplined.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay. So, anybody who has spent much time watching wildlife documentaries has probably seen these iconic images of wildebeest crossing the Mara. And every time, it ends with that one poor wildebeest that doesn't make it. But in the videos, that's sort of the end of the story. The wildebeest dies, it gets eaten by a crocodile, and that's it. What made you start thinking about what comes next for, for those news?
1: Well, I think two things. The first was my background was in wildlife biology, studying how animals move across landscapes. And at some point I started to want to turn that question on its head and ask what does it mean for a landscape to have an animal move through it? How do the animals influence the ecosystems through which they pass? And shortly after that, I went to the Mara River to begin a job on a water resources management project and standing on the banks of the Mara River, I saw hundreds of wildebeest carcasses along the bank of the river. And like you said, I had never seen that before on the television shows either. Nobody seemed to really know how so many had gotten there, what they were doing there, what was going to happen. And it raised a lot of questions.
0: No, if I had thought about this at all, I think I would have assumed that these creatures just ended up as crocodile food. But that's not the case, right? There are only a small number of them that end up being eaten by the crocodiles. And the rest go, they get eaten by other things.
1: Right. Yeah, the crocodiles are kind of the iconic thing to photograph killing wildebeest during the crossings. You know, everybody's looking for that photograph of a crocodile taking down a wildebeest. And it's really dramatic to watch. And definitely these crossings are really important for the crocodiles. But crocodilians actually have really low metabolic rates. So the rate at which they um, utilize energy is is really slow. And so they can actually subsist on maybe one or two carcasses for a whole season. And although we don't yet know exactly how many crocodiles are in the Mara River, we can estimate how many. And they would really only make a small dent in the total number of carcasses that go in the river every year.
0: So what else is eating? I mean, I assume eating, like some, something's doing something with the, <laughs> the, the bone and the muscle and the flesh. Right. What else is doing away with these things?
1: So it's a really big pulse for a whole lot of things. A lot of the carcass decomposes pretty quickly, and some of that just increases nutrient levels in the water, and a lot of those nutrients are are flushed downstream. We saw through our research that fish at least appear to be consuming wildebeest meat directly, and now we have some evidence suggesting that insects might also be consuming the wildebeest meat directly when the carcasses are available. And we see a big response of avian scavengers um, in kind of a succession. So first, a number of uh, large vultures and marabou storks that come in and feed on the soft tissue, Um, and then a number of smaller birds like sacred ibis that come in and feed on the maggots that develop from the insects that colonize the carcasses.
0: That's so gross and so cool. (laughs) Okay, so I want to go back to something you said earlier, though, because you said you found yourself on the Mara River. How did you get there?
1: I was incredibly fortunate to get a position um, working for a project that was funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development, and it was a project on integrated water resources management in the Mara River Basin. So basically, how do we manage our, our whole watershed to make sure there's enough water for a healthy river ecosystem and for the people and the wildlife that depend on the water in the river. So I was working on an environmental flow assessment in the river, determining how much water needed to be left in the river channel and how much was available to be abstracted for human use. And then the river runs through the Masaimara Mara National Reserve and Serengeti National Park in kind of its middle reaches. So a portion of our research was inside of these protected areas. And when I started working there, I started seeing the really important role that um, large wildlife play in influencing the river.
0: And in terms of wildebeests, we're talking about thousands, right? Thousands of wildebeest bodies in what amounts to a, a moderately sized river. I, I think I saw somewhere it was compared to adding ten blue whale carcasses to the river. Is that? Yeah. That's a big buffet.
1: It is. It's really huge. It's it's a huge amount, and it's it's a substantial proportion of the nutrient budget of the river system. So we often think of animals as not playing a particularly large role in nutrient cycling or carbon cycling because it's a relatively small proportion of the total carbon and nutrients compared to things like plant matter or microbial biomass. But the Mara River is a really unique opportunity. The the Serengeti Mara ecosystem as a whole, in which we can see such large amounts of animal biomass, perhaps reminiscent of what was existing in many other places across the world, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, but it's been left intact in that region.
0: And this is one of the only places where this still happens, right? I mean, like, this used to happen presumably in the American West with with the bison and and in other places, but we've hunted those animals down, we've put roads in front of them, we've changed their migratory patterns. This is a snapshot of the world as it once was in, in river ecosystems. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that's a, a point that we try to make with our research. And in doing this research, I learned the estimates are that there were 30 to 60 million bison in the American West in the late 1700s. And that is astonishing. And there are records in Lewis and Clark and other journals of other early explorers of large drownings happening regularly when these big bison herds would cross the rivers of the Great Plains. Drownings of hundreds and thousands of bison happening, perhaps annually, in these rivers, too. Setting the Serengeti-Mara ecosystem gives us an opportunity to think about the things that have been lost from these other landscapes.
0: You know, it's so interesting because when we think about restoration and bringing things back to this natural state, I mean, to some extent, we're just not we. we can't do that, right? We, I mean, we're probably not ever going to be in a position where we, we're going to have enough American bison to mass drown in the Yellowstone River.
1: Right, right. And people talk about rewilding, and, and that's a bit of a hot topic, actually. You know, the idea that should we reestablish some of these, these large herds or these species that are now lost from these systems? And, and what does that mean to try to put a species back on a landscape or to put a large population back on a landscape? And, you know, I think you're right. For better or worse, more times than not, that's not really a possibility. But what I think it it can do is help us appreciate the potentially the altered baseline that we're studying. You know, when we look at a river in the American West right now and it flows crystal clear and has low nutrient levels, we can at least think maybe it didn't always flow this way. Maybe what we're seeing now is a relatively clean river compared to the kinds of nutrient levels that might have been in there historically when large wildlife were a bigger part of the landscape. What we choose to do with that knowledge is a more complex question.
0: One of the things that that you learned as you looked at uh, the wildebeest carcasses as they decompose is that the flesh goes fast, right? Like in a matter of weeks, but the bones stick around for a really long time. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, that was, I think, for me, one of the most surprising and exciting parts of this study because, as I mentioned, you know, we saw this as a big pulse event. You know, these carcasses come in, nutrient concentrations. Double, triple, quadruple. Avian scavengers hone in on the area. Lots of activity happens. And within three to four weeks, everything kind of goes back to normal. And even the carcasses are gone. You don't see them anymore in the river. And it seems like everything is over. And after we started studying this, we learned that although the soft tissue decomposes within a couple of weeks, the bones can take years to decompose. And the bones account for about half of the dry mass of a carcass. And it's where like 95% of the phosphorus is. So these bones in a way can act like a slow release fertilizer pellet laying in the bottom of the river. And they're being added every year because these drownings are really almost an annual event.
0: We met for the first time over the phone last year. And when we were talking then, Uh, We were talking about hippos, which are generally considered to be herbivores, but which you and some other researchers have identified are actually opportunistic carnivores or omnivores, I guess, and even cannibals sometimes. You've got a knack for noticing things that don't always get noticed. And I'm wondering where that comes from.
1: Well, thank you. (laughs) That's a big compliment. I mean, it's from just spending a lot of time in the field, I think. Um, I love to be outdoors. And the longer you're out there, the more you notice these things. And I think it's also being willing to ask questions that sometimes seem silly or seem like, well, we already have an answer to that. Of course, hippos eat grass. Um, But actually, a lot of times those questions are much more complex than we think at first glance.
0: That's Amanda Sabalewski. Amanda, will you stick around until the end of our show for a chat with our next guest?
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: And I can't wait to see the look on your face when you realize the world isn't all cupcakes and rainbows. Because it isn't. And that, of course, is Justin Timberlake's greatest contribution to mankind, the character Branch from the 2016 DreamWorks movie Trolls. And it's true. The world isn't all cupcakes and rainbows. And that's something that a lot of people learn from trolls of another kind in 2016, as the internet trolls, people who take a perverse pleasure in upsetting others online, played a major role in the discourse that surrounded the U.S. presidential election. The impact of all that trolling is the subject of Candy Carter Olson's paper in the Journal of Public Interest Communications, and the title is long and telling. (laughs) The paper is called Feminazis, Libtards, Snowflakes, and Racists, Trolling, and the spiral of silence impact on women, LGBTQIA communities, and disability populations before and after the 2016 election. Whoa. It really is a mouthful. Candy Carter Olsen, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you. It is a mouthful. So as the 2016 election came to an end, Caitlin Dewey of The Washington Post suggested that the only real winners in that election were the trolls. Why do you think this election in particular became defined in large part, not just by disagreements and arguments and even anger on social media, but by harassment?
2: Well, and we're increasingly seeing harassment, right, particularly of journalists and women journalists online. So I think that the research that myself and my research partner, Victoria LaPoe, who's at Ohio University, the stuff we're doing is just going to get more pertinent. Let's just face it, politics has never been a nice business. And when we talk about the 2016 election and we go, oh, people were so nasty and the debates were just so mean and yada, yada, yada. Well, it's not a nice business. The difference there is that we are starting to see this influx of external people deliberately pushing the online discourse in ways that they want to see it go, and often by silencing people that don't agree with them. There was a study in 2017 that showed that 18 different countries had their elections influenced by forces outside their country. We know that one of the biggest trolls of the 2016 election was a teenager in Macedonia sitting at his computer earning a ton of money because, you know what, he couldn't earn that money doing another job in Macedonia, but he could do it by setting up a website and being a troll. I feel like I could have been good at that
0: when I was a teenager. I know. (laughs) For a a disenfranchised young man, I I feel like I I missed my calling. In in your research, you surveyed hundreds of social media users, and you found that people with disabilities were more likely to feel as they been attacked online, that women were far more likely than men to be attacked online, that people who identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or genderqueer were more likely to be attacked. It's
2: consistent across what
0: we would usually think of as disenfranchised groups. And were you surprised? Or did this fit into what you've come to expect from this really ugly online world?
2: What surprised us most is that the difference between our survey last year and our and our survey this year is last year we had everybody saying, well, even though people are nasty, even though the, the discourse is mean, even though I'm being harassed, it's important to get out there and talk about politics. It's important to get my voice heard. And this year we heard had a lot more people pushing back and saying, you know, the number one thing you should never talk about online? Politics it shouldn't be talked about online. While we saw last year that people had deliberately silenced themselves around certain issues, it's increasing, which is really troubling when we look at how the internet really defines a lot of the ways that our political conversations are happening now. Here, we've got what is supposed to be the great equalizer, the internet, and people are deliberately not engaging. On the other hand, we see huge political movements being organized purely through the internet. So they they start on the internet and then they go in person. So this happened with the March for Our Lives, with the Women's March. So while people are saying politics shouldn't be talked about online, that's in direct contrast to what's actually happening and what is really important in our political discourse and our political
0: lives today. You also found that marginalized groups were also more likely to say that they had actively censored themselves because they didn't want to deal, presumably, with being harassed. Yeah. So so these people are not just suffering more attacks, but they're also they're silencing themselves disproportionately to people who aren't marginalized.
2: Yes. When we're talking about trolling, we're not just talking about people who are doing things for a snicker in their basement because they've got nothing better to do. These are real personal attacks that cause real fear in people and they go to the core of people. We've heard stories of people whose wives and daughters have been threatened, and they will give your address of your house. They know where to find you. It's
0: called doxing. It's right? called
2: doxing. Yeah. And they'll give out your phone number online. Doxing, it, it takes harassment beyond just, hey, you're a jerk or worse words than that, to, you're genuinely harming my personal safety. The groups that are disproportionately attacked or doxed have a disproportionate amount of fear because they're already marginalized groups, right? Wouldn't you log off too?
0: Yeah, I think I would. Yeah, I mean, um, genuinely. You also noticed a pretty significant before and after effect, both the number of attacks on the ways in which people were self-censoring was impacted by the election. Talk about that.
2: Well, interestingly, we we saw... The winners, the conservative side, the ones who are supposedly in power now, were just as likely to say that they felt like nobody liked them or that they were being told to shut up. But they were not as likely to say that they would take themselves off, which is really kind of interesting.
0: Because maybe everybody's screaming at each other, but one side has greater reason to fear than the other side, presumably. Yeah, yeah. presumably. In this and other publications, you've called this phenomenon a spiral of silence. Why?
2: Um, That's actually a theory that was developed by um, Noelle Newman. She came up with this idea that that people like to be in the majority because the majority is safe. And so when they find that their opinion is not represented by the majority or mainstream media, they are more likely to change their opinion or to say that they're changing their opinion to fit with the majority because it makes them feel safe. They're less likely to be silenced if they're super passionate about an issue. In, in our spiral of silence, it's not that people change their opinion, it's that they just choose not to state it for their own safety. Or their own perceived safety. In
0: a democratic world, that's problematic.
2: That's really problematic in a democratic world, especially when our democracy happens so much online now. When we look again at the studies that show so many elections around the world, so many democratic elections around the world are being influenced by external people online deliberately trying to silence contrasting opinions. That's that's huge.
0: That's Candy Carter Olson. Candy, are you ready for a chat about something a little different?
2: I am completely ready.
0: All right, now's part of the show where I give an introduction. Candy, I'd like to introduce you to ecologist Amanda Sobolewski.
2: Hello. Hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you as well.
0: And Amanda, I'm really happy to introduce you to media researcher Candy Carter Olson. Candy, let me start with you. You were listening to my conversation with Amanda about wildebeests, the Mm -hmm. circle of life and the ways we learn things when we ask questions that haven't been asked. Did that spark an idea or create a question for you?
2: I'm interested in this idea of rewilding, and I understand that it's probably not overly possible in so many different ways, but wouldn't it be an important thing for us to do, or would it really destroy new ecological systems that have been set up? And then the second question I had is, you were looking at... How many nutrients were in these rivers that had animals in them and all kinds of things dying and these bones that just laid there forever? And now we have, quote unquote, clean rivers. Are the clean rivers really healthier?
1: Well, those are both really great questions and, of course, no easy answers. I mean, I will say regarding rewilding, part of the answer, I think, to that is that everything has changed since, say, mastodons went extinct, you Mm -hmm. know, in North America. And I think that's part of the challenge with the idea that you could just put a mastodon back. Right on in, into North America and and let it go and it would somehow reestablish some kind of equilibrium. It's like well everything
0: for <laughs> <has laughs> make changed. a Jurassic Park kind of <laughs> thing going on. Right, a yeah. lot has changed.
1: There are there are case studies then where reintroducing wel- wolves to the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem mm-hmm. is a, a little bit more feasible and it's right. a little bit more of a we're dealing with a current an, an ecosystem state that's still relatively intact and relatively current to the situation that where we would have. Had had wolves and so it's a little more feasible to reintroduce them and I think those are the places where we can actually probably do that more feasibly the question about clean rivers is a really good one because I, I want to be clear that clean rivers and clean water quality is a tremendously important ecosystem service that right. rivers provide for people and wildlife all over the world. The Mara is unique. It does have really high levels of nutrients, and by all kind of standards, it would be considered to have poor water quality. But even back when animals were roaming so many parts of our world, I don't necessarily think that all rivers looked like the Mara. Even more importantly, though, those conditions wouldn't be compounded by additional nutrient loading from humans and additional land use changes leading to runoff and erosion from the landscape. Those would have been happening in
2: wholly intact ecosystems. You said there were humans living around the Mara. How do they use the river? Do they actually drink the river? They do.
1: There's approximately a million people that live in the Mara Basin, and about half of those people depend on the Mara River or surface waters in the Mara River watershed directly for their domestic water needs. So they'll go to the river and and they'll wash their clothes in it, they'll bathe in it, and then they'll collect jugs of water to take home and drink.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. Amanda, you use social media quite a bit to share what you're learning. You blog, you tweet. Were there things that Candy was talking about that you found familiar? Are there subjects that you shy away from when when you're writing about your research or when you're writing about your life because you don't want people to use that to make opinions about your research?
1: Absolutely. I think your research is so interesting and is something that I think – probably all of us have thought so much about and certainly every time I post something online and I would say more so in the last year or two I'm noticeably thoughtful about who might take that where it might be picked up and how it might be interpreted one thing that I wonder is like what's the likelihood of just some random person being targeted by trolls
2: I think it depends on what platform you are you're on so I've been trolled on On Twitter, I was actually really proud. I was like, oh, I have my first troll. Look at that. I I ignored and didn't feed the troll. Um, You know, I think it depends on how much that person is really out there and how much they're sharing political opinions. Mm -hmm. So I'm really circumspect on most of my social media about the politics that I share Mm -hmm. and the political opinions I share. I tell people, if you want to talk to me about something, you want to debate it, you come and talk to me in person. I'm Mm -hmm. happy to talk to you over over coffee because it's easier – to not hate somebody when they're right in your face. Mm -hmm. So I think it depends on the platform. On Twitter, there's there's a fairly high likelihood. But, you know, there's 330 million users of Twitter versus 2.1 billion users of Facebook. And when you look at worldwide social media usage, I can't remember if it's 2.5 or 2.6 billion users worldwide Mm -hmm. of social media this year projected. There's also things like WhatsApp and all of these other... Apps and Facebook Messenger and Instagram, where people can find more information on you than you think they can, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more kind of targeting.
0: You think this is going to get worse before it gets better? I think so.
2: Yeah. We're already seeing it get worse before it gets better, right? If you look at the history of media and the history of media adoption, how long was orality around? How long was just straight literacy around? How long was the TV around? Now, how long have we had the Internet and how fast is it changing? We cannot keep up. We're struggling to understand this new communication paradigm and how it's changing us Mm -hmm. and the world. And I think it will get worse before it gets better because we've got to figure all that stuff out.
0: So we can't put the rivers back to the way they were centuries and centuries ago, right? We probably can't put media back to the good old days. And there's probably some pretty good question about whether the good old days were the good old days. Mm-hmm. So we
2: always complain about new media.
0: Right. So I'm wondering like from a scientific perspective on both of your parts, where is your baseline? Where where where's the where's the moral baseline or the research baseline if if there's not something that we can kind of return the world to.
2: I think we need to understand where We are now to understand where we're going, and we need to understand where we've come from. If we don't understand that, then we cannot get trolling under control. We can't figure out where we can rewild and where we can't. Mm
1: -hmm. That's true, yeah, I think, understanding baselines are dynamic. There isn't such a thing as a concrete baseline. Baselines change, they change over time. They can change really quickly, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and I think the ultimate question is, well, what are we trying to manage for? It's to the stakeholders to decide, well, what do you want? Do you want mastodons or elephants because we don't have mastodons roaming around? Do you want wolves in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Do you want to maintain the wildebeest migration? You know, and then people make a decision about what kind of world they want to live in and what kind of sacrifices they're willing to make to make that world happen. And I imagine it's maybe similar.
2: That's a really good point. I think within the media world, we are talking about, well, how much freedom of speech do we want to sacrifice? How much freedom of what we share do we want to sacrifice? And that's a really big